and welcome to SSI Live. You've long known the Strategic Studies Institute, or SSI, at the U.S. Army War College as the go-to location for issues related to national security and military strategy with an emphasis on geostrategic analysis. SSI conducts strategic research and analysis to support the U.S. Army War College curricula, assist and inform Army, DOD, and U.S. government leadership, and serve as a bridge to the wider strategic community. Now we're bringing you access to SSI analyses, scholars, and guests through this, the SSI Live podcast series. Thanks for joining us. My name is John Denny, and I'm a research professor of National Security Studies here at the Strategic Studies Institute. It's Friday, January 5th, and today I'm joined by my SSI colleague, Nate Fryer. Nate's a research professor of National Security Studies, and he's leading a team of interdisciplinary researchers at the War College on a project regarding multi-domain battle in the Pacific. Now, with the recent release of the Trump administration's first national security strategy, we thought this would be a good time to check in with Nate to discuss his team's ongoing research in light of that new strategy. So, Nate, welcome. Hello, it's great to be here. Thanks. Nate, let me uh, first ask you, in light of this recently recently released national security strategy, what's your perception? We're going to start broad here before we dive into the specifics of of uh, the research topic, which is primarily focused sure. on the Pacific Command. Uh, what's the sure. state, broadly speaking, of American power today, in your view, and specifically military power vis-a-vis the, the major security challenges of the day? So, yeah, I, I, I think that's a great way to start, to tell you the truth. And I, let me just sort of, with a shameless plug for the work we've done over the last two and a half years, I'd say, We've really been on kind of an amazing and insightful journey uh, through U.S. defense, military, and national security policy over the last two and a half years. Um, so really, it wasn't our original intent necessarily of the research we were doing. We found three successive study efforts over the you know past two and a half years, uh, culminating, at least not culminating, but we're in the midst of the third one now, but the, the previous two on gray zone challenges, enterprise-level risk, and then now the multi-domain um, uh, study that we're involved in right now, uh, all of them have kind of led us to some tough conclusions on the state of U.S. influence and power across competitive domains and in the regions that are that most recognize as being, you know, the most critical to U.S. security um, and U.S. position around the world. I think the bottom line really is, at present, real durable strategic advantage is not a dominant reality for the United States. The United States has lost the strategic initiative vis-a-vis consequential challenges like China and Russia. And really, as a consequence, it is persistently outmaneuvered and outplayed in a lot of high-stakes international competition. I mean, I think it's no secret also that much of that competition occurs via, you know, to use some buzzwords, via asymmetric, hybrid, or gray zone methods. Um, But what we're really seeing is these methods, I mean, at one time, folks talked about, you know, hey, the strategy of the week or using asymmetric approaches to outmatch U.S. strengths and things like that. I think what's really coming to the fore, especially as it it applies to, you know, competitors like China and Russia is, you know, they're applying asymmetric, gray, hybrid methods, but these methods are increasingly backed by real military challenges that drive U.S. risk calculations ever higher. And it's, in many cases, this combination of gray zone maneuver and real military hazard that is increasingly paralyzing U.S. decision-making. Nate, you mentioned competition, and I know in your work you talk about uh, the phrase hyper-competition. 
Can you define that for us a little bit more, maybe unpack what you mean by that in the context of other great powers, China and Russia? Yeah, well, so this, again, leads back to previous work. I mean, um, uh, look, since the end of the Cold War, the United States grew incredibly comfortable with, you know, unfettered freedom of action that 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 sort of accompanies what, you know, we political science nerds tend to call primacy, right? Um, and uh, what we've concluded what we concluded in our recent risk work is that the operative conditions for the United States, they are fundamentally, fundamentally different. I mean, primacy is not a word that we should be actually throwing around without actually, you know, spending a little bit of time, you know, more deeply understanding either what it means, whether we still have it, et cetera. So last summer we labeled the current status quo for the United States as one of post primacy. When we came out of the risk, risk work, we said we've entered a post primacy environment. That loaded phrase, was really tough for some to accept. I mean, we found a lot of pushback um, within, when we use that phrase. Within the military? Well, largely, yeah. I mean, I think we, it was senior, sort of senior uniformed and civilian defense and military leadership that, uh, that were still sort of in the business of thinking about the United States position um, in the world and how it operated in the world. Um, were really sort of uncomfortable with the term post-privacy. I mean, it was, you know, like I said, it was a loaded phrase. It was tough for some to accept. Um, but we felt, actually, in the process of going through the study, we felt that it best reflected what we thought was an emerging strategic reality where the United States would increasingly need to work much harder to gain and retain advantage over competitors like China and Russia. I mean, what it wasn't implying is that for some reason we had, quote, lost what it really meant is that we had to recognize that we were back in the, we were back in a game, right? Like, you know, I think we had become comfortable over time recognize we had become comfortable over time thinking, hey, look, we can dictate, you know, terms, uh, you know, we can dictate sort of outcomes on our terms at any time at any place we want based on sort of our prime, you know, our primary advantage over all others. The, the reality is that's not the case anymore. I mean, that we're going to have to work much harder to attain those same kinds of outcomes. So look, in our work now, we're increasingly using the phrase, as you pointed out, hyper-competition to characterize the, the contemporary environment. And hyper-competition is a business term at, that really at the end of our risk work we came onto. Um, and when translated to statecraft and military rivalry, it implies that restoration and maintenance really of a favorable U.S. position and of favorable U.S. position and influence as it relates to significant regional and new period challenges is going to rely on some serial success in what's a persistent struggle for transient, not permanent advantage. Again, that's another thing that's relatively hard for folks to get their mind around. But it, the bottom line is, is that, I mean, to, to sort of jump down to sort of the multi-domain discussion, that's exactly what the multi-domain work is starting to recognize is that you're never going to have, or that we're increasingly across domains, not going to have permanent advantage. So the race doesn't end. are going to have to. The race doesn't end. It I'm just sorry. Leads into another race, another contest, another competition. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Let, so, let, yeah. So let I mean, me ask you to take oh, that ahead. down into now the the specific region of the world that your study is going to look at or is looking at the Indo-Asia Pacific. What's your right. assessment so far at this stage? of American competitiveness there? What's the, the state, so to speak? Well, without question, American regional interests in the Indo-Pacific are fundamentally vulnerable. Um, 
what the way the way I characterize it, China's enjoyed a nearly a nearly two decade strategic holiday about the pervasive pressure and influence of comprehensive U.S. power. I mean, that's that's a reality. Um, you know, uh, the United States had to date, sort of pre nine eleven, prided itself with the ability to multitask, but quickly became tied down and obsessed. Um, with not managing, but instead eradicating the terrorist threat post 9-11. And as a result of that, it sort of, it sort of lost its strategic acumen um, from, from my perspective. You know, I think frontline allied states, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, um, were always rhetorically on the front burner for the United States. Um, but the impression I'm coming to or that we're coming to is that there once rock, you know, the once rock solid confidence in, in an activist United States has really been shaken as a result of sort of our taking our eye off the ball. I mean, and really what, what it's sort of boiled down to is China's effectively of late China's effectively nullified or at least substantially limited American advantages, essentially by weaponizing every instrument at their disposal. Right. I mean, um, it's, it's, you know, uh, it's China's campaign-like approach in the Indo-Pacific competition that occurs across domains and across channels and across functions um, that has left the United States really off-balance and what we called in the risk report sort of risk-confused. Hmm. Well, let me push back a little bit on that. I know that you know, sure. pr- prior to this recording, you and I were discussing how one of the hypotheses that your group is wrestling with is that the U.S. is, as you just said, off balance, uh, maybe sluggish in its response, kind of a, a reluctant mm-hmm. great power. Um, but if you look at the last couple of years, you know, one could point to the negotiation of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP. I mean, this was a major uh, economic uh, agreement that spanned the Pacific Ocean that excluded China, uh, which is pretty amazing that we were able to get other allies in the region to sign on to that, given the the, uh, the magnetic force that Beijing has when it comes to economic matters. On the military side, of course, we had uh, the U.S. had negotiations with the Philippines for renewed basing access. We've seen Marines deployed to Australia on a routine basis now for years, and a tightening, not a loosening, but a tightening of U.S. military relationships with Japan and South Korea. Now, all that said, of course, and maybe this supports your point, uh, recent actions by the Trump administration to, to withdraw the U.S. from TPP um, and to raise questions among some of our closest allies about our willingness to defend them. Uh, all these things maybe go pretty far in strengthening your argument. So I guess my question is, is the phenomenon you're observing that you're wrestling with, whether and how the U.S. is is too sluggish, too reactionary in the region, is that just as old as 2017 and maybe just uh, just transient? You know, part of the Trump administration phenomenon, or is it something deeper? What, what do you what do you what are you seeing? Well, so look, I've been looking. I mean, you know, I've been looking heavily at the Pacific competition since 2013. I mean, there's others that have been involved in it much longer than I have, but 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 I mean. I've really had, you know, sort of a, you know, professional focus on the, on the Pacific competition since 2013 while I was still at CSIS. And most recently with the two studies we published on, you know, gray zone challenges on risk, we spent a lot of time looking at the Pacific as well. I mean, the way I, the way I'd put it is look, rhetorically, the rebalance to the Asia Pacific region or the Indo Pacific region really predates the Obama administration at a minimum it dates back to Bush 43, mm-hmm. right? Because if you look at the, you know, the first 
Bush QDR in 2001, it really was sort of trying to refocus the de- Defense Department anyway on sort of resurging great power competition um, in the Indo-Pacific theater. I'd say at the same time, the erosion of our position and influence vis-a-vis China and the Indo-Pacific definitely predates the Trump administration, administration, right? So I'd say here's the bottom. I mean, here's sort of the, sort of the cold hard facts. The cold hard facts are that we're easily, easily distracted. If in fact the rebalance, you know, sort of rhetorically started, in, in in the administration of Bush 43, mm-hmm. 9-11 halted that reorientation on resurgent great power competition with China. I mean, 9-11 basically put, you know, put, put that to a complete stop. Basically mm-hmm. we put, um, we really put the reinforcement and reimagining of Indo-Pacific security, security on pause with the initiation of what we all now know as an almost two decade old counterterrorism war. Right. Um, uh, what I would also warn about is now, frankly, um, the immediate and dangerous, but not necessarily existential DPRK problem threats and threats to distract us again from this more fundamental competition occurring in the Pacific Rim in Asia with China. Right. Um, so, I mean, I think that, I think that we, we sell ourselves short. I mean, I think that there's been almost like a sort of persistent story of the United States, not necessarily knowing how to contend, with this really, you know, broad multi-front China challenge that's occurring in the Pacific. And China is clearly, you know, in the business of trying to dislodge the United States from, from the region as the principal arbiter of outcomes, right? Strategic outcomes. So, I mean, there's no doubt that China is attempting to supplant the United States as the region's most dominant, um, as the region's most dominant power. And they have, to date succeeded in a lot of ways in really constraining um, in constraining U.S. options and, and, and U.S. freedom of action in that region, largely by sort of manipulating outcomes on sort of a multi-front, asymmetric, sort of gray and hybrid approach. Well, th- this may be premature uh, given where you are in the study process, but can you can you look ahead and give us a sense then of – what does what do policies look like that would thrive against this hyper competition that would try to uh, outpace Chinese innovation and you know posture our military or defense institutions in the, in the right way? What's your sense of what your group is is finding? Well, so look, I mean, the one thing that, that sort of the big aha moment I had in my most recent trip to uh, to the Asia Pacific region um, in support of this project is that the United States really needs to make a dramatic and meaningful defense and military reentry into the region's competitive environment. I mean, that sounds, you know, that sounds very sort of bumper stickery, but you know, here's what it means. It means we have to, we have to actively campaign with our allies, like, you know, actively campaign with our allies against China's aggressive gray zone methods across and within all the competitive domains right now. That's air, land, sea, space, cyberspace, the EMS, and what we in the study are starting to call the decision and influence space. I would actually argue, and we're coming to a conclusion, that the growth industry in this regard is really space, cyberspace, the EMS, and this softer decision and influence space. Um, But I think really what it also starts with is it starts with a much more sophisticated understanding of what contemporary military advantage means now. I mean, I think that 
we have a decidedly 20th century view of what military advantage means. And as a result of that, we're proceeding down a path. We're trying to build, you know, we're trying to outbuild a pile, you know, the, the other guy's pile of iron, basically. I mean, I would, you know, with at, at risk of sounding a bit insulting, I mean, we're taking a bit of a Soviet approach to military competition in the Asia Pacific. I mean, what we really have to recognize is that advantage is transient, it's multi-domain, and it's often often as much in the hands of the adversary as it is in the hands of the United States and its partners. Ownership of advantage is temporary, and it's in persistent dispute, right? So if that's the case, then you have to be much more nimble in the way you approach competition. You have to recognize that you have to modulate, uh, you know, competitive activities across and within domains in ways that you're not necessarily used to. You have to exercise sort of a greater degree of mission command, you know, using a decidedly very military term. You have to sort of allow your sort of on-scene military authorities to act, you know, based on strategic intent many times to sort of push back against what I find to be very, you know, what I find to be campaign-like Chinese aggression in the Asia-Pacific. And right now, you know, we need a degree of boldness that we have to date uh, demonstrated a significant reluctance to dem- to, um, to to show to show. I mean, um, we have to begin sort of prudently accepting more risk and beginning to shift additional risk onto the adversary in the Pacific, and that is what we are not doing right now. Well, Nate, this is a great uh, preview, a teaser almost of uh, of this ongoing study. Now, this study will be out when this coming summer. Yeah, well, we we look to sort of be complete, you know, in April, have it to the editors by April. You know, I think it's important for everybody to know that we're going to begin rolling out preliminary insights on this as early as May. So in May, we're going to do a series of desk side briefings to uh, stakeholders in Washington, D.C. We're going to be involved in LANPAC, the the AUSA's uh, annual Pacific Conference in in just just prior to, to Memorial Day in May, and then we're going to roll out at the American Enterprise Institute fully on the first of June in Washington D.C. Uh, um, so we look forward to you know bringing this to a close. But I would also say this is kind of a phase one approach. We're going to have a phase two to this that is as yet determined the exact nature and shape of that phase two, but it's going to take this a step further and kind of look deeper and also roll the Russians into the discussion. Well, this is great. We will stay tuned, and we'll come back to this topic, Nate, with you uh, when your report is ready for public release. So, Nate Fryer, Research Professor of National Security Studies, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It's great being here. I appreciate it. You can now find SSI Live on TuneIn Radio and on popular podcast directories like Stitcher and at the iTunes Store. If you have any comments on our podcasts, thoughts on what you'd like to see addressed, or a response to something you heard here at SSI Live, please go to our website. That's ssi.armywarcollege.edu. Find me, John Denny, in the staff directory, and send me an email. I look forward to hearing from you. For the SSI Live podcast series, I'm John Denny. Thanks for listening.